Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for Bible lovers around the globe. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. So Tim, you're up this week, but I, I, I took a little glance at your notes and it looks like you're kind of veering from the usual path. Yes. So the first reading this week is Isaiah 54 through 9a, and we happen to have a great episode on this passage from when it came up on Palm Passion Sunday a couple years ago. So Rachel, you did such a good job on that text that I'll just refer folks to that episode. (laughs) And for this week, I'll give some reflections on one of the psalm readings. Sound good? Yeah, it sounds excellent. You know I love the Psalms, but uh, I was laughing because I was trying to think, who did that episode? And then you said it was me. I was like, oh, okay, I did that episode. (laughs) We've been at this for a while. Yeah, yeah. So since you did that one, we know we've got it covered and we know it is of superb quality. Oh, sure, sure. Anyway, let's go to the Psalms. Let's do the Psalms. So uh, there are a couple readings for the week, depending on whether you're looking in the Palm Sunday slot or the Passion Sunday slot. So remember, this Mm -hmm. liturgical moment is celebrated variously in different traditions. So you might be doing one or the other or both. Mm -hmm. At any rate, I'm going to take a few minutes this week in Psalm 31, 9 to 16, which is the Passion Sunday Psalm. Okay. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm always up for a good psalm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that chunk, verses 9 to 16? Yes. So that's what the lectionary gives us. And Mm -hmm. the lectionary abbreviates the reading because the psalm, it is a bit long. And they've picked out the parts that seem like they would probably be the most widely applicable. Mm -hmm. But, But you're raising a good point. Even if we focus on these verses... It's always super important to remember that they're part of a larger composition, and the sense of the whole should inform how we read the bits that are within it. Mm, absolutely, contextual reading is so important. Um, okay, great. So, what do you what do you think about that that wholeness of the psalm? Yeah. So, I'm not as up as you are on my psalmic genres. So, I don't know if I can give you a formal title for this type of psalm. But it's like lots of others that express fear, danger, distress, right alongside hope, trust, and an expectation of God's help. Mm -hmm. So it starts out with that call for help. In the first couple verses, oh, and if you're looking at this in Hebrew, note that like many of the Psalms, the Hebrew version counts the superscription as verse one. uh, So the numbering will be one behind in English. Mm. Anyway. In the first couple of verses uh, in the psalm, we have a triad of Hebrew words, falteni, which is like spring me from a trap, hatsileni, rescue me, and hoshieni, save me. Mm. These are all sort of synonyms, but they pile up here at the beginning of the psalm to give a sense of desperation. Well, and it's great, too, that you raised that um, hoshieni, because that's the, the root of the hosanna that we say on Palm, Palm Sunday. Sunday. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Nicely done. So the psalm starts out with this desperation, but then swings right away over into trust. And mm-hmm. the next couple of verses has a bunch of metaphors for God's trustworthiness. Sela, which means rock. Mitsuda, a fortress. Maoz, stronghold. And um, verse 5, which is verse 6 in Hebrew, is the famous quote that Jesus is reported to have said from the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit. So there's Mm -hmm. that sense of of trust. 
And in the couple verses that come right before the lectionary section that starts in verse 9, there's a kind of confidence in remembering how God has consistently come through for the psalmist in the past. But then it slams right back into terror in verse 9, where we pick it up for the lectionary. <laughs> yeah, I like to call that the uh, the psalmic emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it just kind of goes all over the place. What, so what do you make of that? What's, uh, do you think it's part of the message of the psalm, or, or is it part of the experience of the psalmist? What's your take? Yeah, I, I think it could be. It's, it's hard to say for sure. Um, but you could definitely read that back and forth, that, that emotional roller coaster, as something intentional on the part of the psalmist. At the least, I can identify with that sense of feeling really confident in God at one moment and then totally distraught in the next. So that, that rings pretty true to life. That's just because you're a grad student right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fact, the transition between verse 8, which is right before the lectionary section, and verse 9 is, is pretty helpful to look at. So even if you do start your reading in verse 9 with the lectionary, you should at least take a peek in the rearview mirror to catch the setup in verse 8. Uh, the psalmist says, you've set my feet in a broad place. And the Hebrew there is merchav, a wide open space. And then verse 9 says, be gracious to me for I'm in distress. Yeah. And there the, the Hebrew is tsarli. And tsar, distress, is literally a narrow space, the exact mm. opposite of merchav. Mm. And often in the Psalms, the experience of distress is described in that way as a narrows. Yeah. I think that term captures some of the, the claustrophobia of a year of pandemic quarantine. Mm. where we might feel closed in by our troubles, just like the psalmist. Yeah, that's an excellent way to capture this feeling of narrowness, of constriction, of claustrophobia. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So if you preach from this psalm, you'll want to highlight that back and forth between distress and trust, validating the experiences of your congregants, while also encouraging them to trust in God's faithfulness, despite real dangers and real distresses. Mm-hmm. Even though we're in narrow straits, God is able to place us again in the freedom of a wide open space. The final verse of the psalm, which is verse 24 in English, is just such an encouragement from the psalmist himself. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And remember, wait, which in this case is yachal in Hebrew, has that, that dual sense of both waiting and hoping. So the sense here is that um, patient perseverance is itself an act of faith in yeah, God. That's so good. I mean, it is, sometimes we think that that um, doubts are the opposite of faith, um, when really perseverance in the midst of doubts is exactly like you named it, an act of faith in mm. God. That's beautiful. Um, so this is fantastic, but you haven't yet talked about the lectionary portion. Do you have anything <laughs> to say about that part? <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, one way to approach preaching from poetry in the Bible is to land on a couple poetic images mm-hmm. and just sort of soak in those, meditate on them for a while to get at the yeah. emotional impact of the poem. And mm-hmm. there are some really great metaphors in this section that I can say a little bit about. Mm-hmm. First, in verse 9, right off the bat, there's this really cool string of body imagery. The NRSV says, My eye wastes away from grief, my soul and body also. Which is fine, but it kind of misses the punch of the Hebrew, which reads, Ashasha 
וכעס איני, נפשי ובטני. השעשע is literally moth eaten, but it can mean more generally like wasting away. So wasting away in grief are my eye, my throat, my belly. Okay, body language expert. What do you make of this sequence of eni, nafshi, uvitni? Yeah, this is one of my places to go when I talk about nefesh. You know, nefesh is the word usually translated as soul, mm-hmm. which we've done, you know, you've you've humored me often enough on this podcast to talk about how it, it means more closely throat or mortal core. Um, so if you take this image of uh, a body that is wasting away from grief and they say, my eye, my throat, and my belly, What I hear in that sequence is just uncontrollable sobbing mm. that is causing that wasting away of the eyes and the throat and the belly. If you think of someone who is grief stricken, that's how their body expresses that grief. And this psalmist is saying, I have been expressing grief so much that my body is worn out from its expression. Yeah, I love that. That is, that is a great way to look at these images. I have a, uh, like something to add to that, yeah. which would be, um, remember that in addition to throat, we've talked about nefesh as a way of talking about our desires or appetites, Yeah. right? So there's something uh, visceral about, about those mm. desires that's mm-hmm. expressed in the word nefesh. And so here, I think um, it might be talking perhaps about literal appetite for food. Because when we're filled with grief and anxiety, that can manifest somatically in a loss of appetite, right? Nice. The yeah. usual sequence of sustenance, seeing food, desiring it, consuming it, ein, nefesh, beten, mm. is disrupted so that the sight of food is no longer appealing. The appetite is lost and the belly wastes away which is another sort of really visceral image of grief and anxiety. Yeah, I like that too, especially if you go back to that idea of how the verb ashasha can mean literally moth-eaten, and it's like something has been taking bites out of your body, like grief has been taking bites out of your body because you can no longer consume the food that it needs, and mm. so you're just being picked at and wasting away. Nice. Yeah, what, what powerful imagery here. Yeah. So uh, verses 11 to 13 describe a social kind of distress that results in extreme isolation. Hmm. Perhaps we can identify with that <laughs> in this year of <laughs> pandemic <Yeah>. isolation. <laughs> And for the psalmist, even their closest friends, which is unfortunately translated by the NRSV as acquaintances, which completely misses the intimacy of meyudaim. Yeah. Even those close friends are avoiding the psalmist. And verse 12 has this wonderfully sad image. I'm forgotten like the dead. I've become like a smashed pot. And that image of a smashed pot really struck me because I've been reading up lately on archaeology. And you know what archaeologists find all over every site? <laughs> Smash pottery. Exactly. <laughs> And you know why? Huh. It's partly because baked clay lasts like forever and doesn't decompose like other materials. But huh. also clay is ubiquitous and cheap. So everyone used clay pots. And when they were done with them, they tossed them out. 
Hmm. So clay pots were actually a lot like single-use plastic in our day. Everyone uses it, and when we're done with it, it gets tossed in a landfill or dumped in the ocean and never decomposes. So hmm. in a few thousand years, if archaeologists are still around on planet Earth, they'll be sifting through our plastic scraps to piece together our history. Oh, wow. But now come back to our psalm. The poet feels like an old plastic baggie hmm. used by their friends and then tossed out like trash. How's that for an image of loneliness? Mm, it's painful. Yeah. Okay, just one more. In verse 16, we have a pretty common religious motif. Let your face shine upon your servant. Mm -hmm. And so often, we, or at least I, uh, I do, just read right past that as just sort of a religious-y thing to say. <laughs> but it's actually another really powerful image. Hayira mm fanecha. -hmm. Light up your face upon me. Hmm. On one level, this comes from a physical practice in ancient Near Eastern temples of lighting lamps to shine light on the face of the divine image so that the worshiper might gaze upon their God, and just as importantly, their God could gaze upon them and bestow blessings. So the psalmist is saying that God's face has seemed to be in shadow. And they're asking God to light it up so that God and the worshiper can see one another clearly and God can provide the rescue that the psalmist so desperately needs. This image also has a relational sense to it. In fact, we have a similar idiom that we use. Uh, when we see someone we love, what do we say? Our face lights up in their yeah. presence, right? Yeah. So on a metaphorical level, I think that's also what the psalmist is asking for here. God, when you see me, don't look around with a shifty glance. Let your face light up to see me, and then I'll know for sure that my rescue's on the way. Mm. That, that's really nice. And I think another aspect of it, too, that comes to mind for me is, is solar imagery. Um, so often the deities were associated with the sun, mm -hmm. and even you know Hezekiah has kind of the winged sun, sun disc on the, uh, the coins. Um, and in, in that verse 19 of the psalm, it says, how abundant is your goodness. So you think of the sun shining and abundant goodness and, and that the sun causes everything to grow. So I think that idea of your face shining upon me is also somehow linked to this provision um, that is not capable of happening without the light of the sun, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is such a I, I love when images from nature are used in poetry because mm -hmm. it, it just it works when you're out in the sun, there's something physical there to remind you that God's favor shines out, yeah. lights up upon us. Nice. Anyway, preachers, swim around a bit in these images. They'll help your congregation connect on a deep level with the, with the sort of pathos of the psalm mm. so that they can hear God's validation of their troubles on the one hand and then also find the hope that the psalmist also finds. I think there's real power in this poetry. Oh, yeah, there is. I mean, all it takes is a little bit of time like this to understand why the Psalms have been used so regularly in worship for centuries and as devotions. I mean, they, they give us language to talk about experiences that can seem overwhelming at times. So, yeah, beautifully done. Nice work. 
Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you take that imagery and um, either run with it or sit with it. You can choose your metaphor that you want. <laughs> but either way, there's a lot here that would make for a great sermon, especially leading up to um, uh, Holy Week. Now, for Easter season, I want to give you a little heads up. Uh, we are doing something slightly different in Easter. Typically, when in the Easter season, the uh, lectionary substitutes acts in place of the Old Testament reading, we rebel and we do series on the Psalms because as you've seen here, there's a lot to talk about there. This year, we're doing something a little differently. Instead of going to the Psalms, we're marching our little rebellious selves into the New Testament and we're gonna look at ways that the New Testament uses the Old Testament to make its points and its claims and its images sing. So we're really excited about that. And if that sounds like something that you'd be interested in as well, then be sure to tune in uh, for our weekly podcast episodes in Easter and watch the ways that the Old and New Testament can be woven together, or maybe that we can see the ways that they're already woven together. Well, that sounds like fun. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Hope you tune in. Uh, But until then, uh, blessed Holy Week to all of you. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week.